Welcome back to the Alts Podcast. I'm your host, Horatio Ruiz. We bring you industry leaders and creators to give their insights on the rapidly changing and exciting world of alternative assets. Opinions expressed on this podcast by the host and podcast guests are for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Podcast hosts and guests may maintain positions in the offerings discussed in this podcast. Thank you for joining the podcast. Today we're talking farmland with Acre Traders Michael Eisman, Director of Operations. In this episode, we go deep into the nuances of farmland, the relationships that Acre Trader has cultivated with farmers, and why farmland is a compelling investment. Michael gives a solid lesson on what investable farmland is and provides a great point about why investors should use all kinds of information to educate themselves before investing money. Michael is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to farmland and investing in it, so I hope you enjoy my conversation with him. All right, guys, so thank you for being on the podcast with us again. Really happy to have uh, this great company, Acre Trader. On today's episode, we have Michael Eisman. He's the Director of Operations. Mike, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. You know, I know we we're talking a little bit before the we started recording and we're kind of familiar with farm investing and, and how it goes. So I'm really looking forward to, to diving in with you about how Acre Traders may be a little bit different, what you guys offer. So I'd like you to begin there. I mean, if you don't mind, kind of like what exactly is Acre Trader, And then we could delve into kind of like what your role is and your experience at the company so far. Yeah. So Acre Trader is a land investment platform. We help investors access farmland and timberland investment opportunities. It's been a pretty incredible asset class in terms of how it's correlated with the market and with other asset classes, but most people haven't really been able to access it. And so we open that opportunity for investors. And then we also partner with farmers to help them grow their own operation. So there are economies of scale at play in the ag industry, just like any other industry. And so if a farmer is growing their operation, new sources of of equity financing are certainly of of interest. And so we're able to partner with them to help them grow their operation. And and right now I'm the director of operation. And so both balancing supply and demand and then making sure that we have all of the correct management and operation system set up so that we can keep all the commitments that, that we make to investors and farmers on the front end. I've been with the company for about three and a half years now, and worn a number of different hats here. It's been a, a really enjoyable time. I've, I've loved working with it. It's a really amazing team of people at, at the intersection of finance, technology, and agriculture here. I spent most of the first two and a half years really focused on the demand side of the equation, so investor education. A lot of people were not really aware of farmland or land as an investment opportunity. And so kind of top of funnel education on the asset class, uh, education around how Acre Trader works, you know, our, our model, and then a lot of education around the specific farms. So we, we've got about 300 million or a little over that of assets under management now and about 115 properties that we funded through the platform. So things are going really well. And, and I certainly enjoy my role here. $300 million. That's all, That's amazing. I mean, when you think about how much land that is, a couple of things that, that you mentioned, you know, working with a, a diverse group of people, you know, you're talking about ag and technology and kind of like, maybe that that, that isn't the most obvious thing, right? For, for an outsider. But what is that like? Bringing this technology, uh, implementing it and working with farmers, because from everything I've gathered, right? Like, yes, they're very hardworking. Uh, no doubt about that. They're very, uh, you know, attached to their land. But what you hear a lot of is how intelligent they are and how business savvy they are. And um, I'm kind of wondering if you could talk about that, like how it is that you, your relationship at Acre Trader and kind of balancing that with, with the farmers that you work with. 
Yeah. I, I mean, first off, there are plenty of people who work at Acre Trader that come from farming backgrounds and farming families that guy I sit right next to wears boots into the office every day. And we're not that detached from the you know end users on both the investor and the the farmer side of our business. And we're, we're based in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I was actually on a farm uh, just west of Memphis, Tennessee, a, a few weeks ago. And we were talking to the farmer that we were working with who, who's farming that piece of land right now. And he's like, you know, I've never really worked with an investment firm before. And, and people have different ideas or assumptions about it. But, we're, you know, we're based in, in Fayetteville, Arkansas. So it's, you know, that's certainly a, a way that <laughs> we've been able to build trust on both the investor and the farmer side, just by kind of our proximity to this asset class that we are uh, opening up. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned like how sophisticated the operator needs to be to have a, a large scale farm. And in today's world, I think people who have not really spent a lot of time on farms or in farming communities may have some really old and untrue perceptions of, of a farmer, but they are an agronomist. They are a CEO. They're managing a, a pretty large operation. They're managing commodities futures. They're managing a calendar of, you know, with their, their planting schedule. So there's a lot that goes into that. Um, we do not take a huge role in the operation component, but if you think about a farmer trying to grow their operation, they may have the the tractors, the combines, the people, and the ambition to grow an operation from, say, 3,000 acres today to 7,000 acres and over the next few years and buying all of that land and putting tens of millions of dollars of debt or or equity to work in order to buy all of those acres is just not realistic. And so we can come in and, and work with those farmers to identify properties that they want to farm. Uh, our investors can bring the capital to purchase those. And then it's usually just a, a tenant relationship where they're renting those acres and able to expand their footprint. And so, yeah, all that to say, we, we don't have a huge operational component. You know, the farmers we work with are, are experts and we're able to facilitate their the growth of their operation with bringing capital to the table. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, it seems like a large part of the business is dependent on the expertise of the farmer, right? And then you guys bring in kind of the financial side of it. I'm wondering, like, how do you guys go about that? Like, how do you guys go about uh, identifying certain farmers, is it maybe, is it identifying certain properties or even crops? What's the, the process behind what you guys invest in? Yeah, that's a great question. It can really start with any one of those. If there's a, a specific crop type, especially in the permanent crop world, uh, where like an orchard, if there's a really special crop type that we're interested in, we may find an operator or an opportunity. We have opportunities brought to us all, all the time. And then we're always you know, looking for farmers to partner with. So it can originate anywhere, but really we're looking for good opportunities at the intersection of good water or appropriate water for the type of crops that are going to be grown there. Appropriate soil for the commodities or crops that you want to uh, produce in that area. And then a good operator, not just a good operator for today, but it needs to be a good farming community with a number of different tenants. So say that one uh, farmer that you're working with decides to retire, you need to make sure that you're not working with the only person who, who may work with you to operate that in the area. But also in, in terms of the farming community, if you're farming cotton, you want a number of cotton gins in the area. You need to have that industry around that farm to support whatever you're trying to grow there. Th there's a number of different types of investment opportunities we've had on the site Timber uh, is is the newest, so that's a little bit different than than other types of crops or farms. Really, 
row crops and row crops, you could consider anything that you're planting and harvesting each year. So a row of corn or soy, soybeans or rice or cotton with that, it's not as much of an investment in that specific commodity, because if the farmer wanted to change and grow wheat next year or soybeans or rice, then, you know, they, they are usually rotating across a number of, you know, two or three different commodities in any given year. It's good for maintaining soil health. So you're not necessarily investing in that one commodity. You're buying an option on all of the different commodities that that soil and and water and and climate can produce. When you get into the orchards where it's, you know, almond tree that's going to be producing one variety of almonds for the next 25 years, then you're taking a little bit more uh, commodity risk as well. So we're focused on that when we're evaluating those opportunities. But it could really be an operator who needs capital to pursue an opportunity or we find an opportunity. And then in our analysis of that that farm market, uh, we identify an operator that we would like to work with to, to grow there. Yeah, uh, I find that so interesting. This conversation could kind of lead us in a number of different directions. Like when you're talking about timberland and then you're talking about, uh, you know, row crops. And I guess my question is kind of going to be all over the place, but certain crops fall out of favor, right? So like you mentioned, uh, you know, almonds or cashews, right? I know that those are really water intensive crops and that maybe based on what I've read, I don't know if they're necessarily accurate. Maybe the prices have fallen for them in recent years, but then I also see the need for you guys to kind of have like, just like a stock portfolio, you have your own diversified portfolio of crops and you need that, right? Like you said, to have, you know, to, to spread your risk. How did you guys determine how is timberland investing different from, say, crop investing and, and, and kind of identifying which crops to kind of uh, grow on your farmland? That's a really good question. And we, we don't necessarily want to be in the position of picking winners. We want to provide optionality to people. Timberland, almond investing, corn, you know, corn and soybean farms, all of those have been pretty difficult to access for investors for a really long time. And we want to provide the optionality. And the way that we see a lot of investors use our platform is not just to diversify into farmland by buying one farm, but to diversify across the asset class as well. So farmland as an asset class has been uncorrelated. It's done well from a historic investment return perspective. But if you only buy one into one opportunity, then you do have that climate or that like there's risk with every investment and farmland is, is no different. And so we see a lot of investors spreading an allocation to the asset class across a number of different opportunities on the platform. We usually have minimums in the you know 10 to 25 or 30,000 range. And so if you compare that to buying a farm of one to $10 million, it's, it's a pretty approachable, you know, bite-sized way to get into the asset class if you compare it to buying whole farms. So that, that would be the first part is just allowing diversification. Anytime we're evaluating a new opportunity, we are hyper-focused on investor education and transparency as well. So we will provide information about that specific commodity, about this region, about the water profile, and try to give as full of a picture as possible for the investor to make their own decision of whether or not they want to participate in that opportunity. You know, you talk about the the, the water there. I don't know if that anybody has any like right answer or a particular answer, but for farmland investing right now, like what is the the risk with with climate change? How does climate change even impact your outlook on things, or your you know maybe um, you know maybe your your short to midterm growth, if at all? What I'm talking about is like, are there areas where you're now you're seeing is is experiencing greater or less waterfall, and is that something that you guys uh, can accurately forecast, or is it you're kind of you know you're kind of waiting for this thing to play out? I guess in the West, right, they've been in, in, in a drought for decades now. No, there's different ideas on that as well, where a lot of the water comes from the 
from the mountains, right? From the melted uh, snow caps. Um, but what about other parts of the, of the country, right? Like, what are you seeing there and, and how are you guys, you know, taking that into account? So in, in terms of climate change, you hit the nail on the head on the, at least on the short and midterm, like you need water to grow crops and that's the, the biggest concern. And when you zoom out of just the Southwest to the whole country and think about water, it's a very different question that you're asking in Illinois compared to California, say. Too much water is just as bad as too little water for any any given year. And so it really does depend on where you are, that irrigation district or that that specific climate. And so you, you need the appropriate amount. In the Midwest, a lot of times you're looking at adding drainage tile. It's essentially like these plastic pipes that will pull water off because they have soils that retain a lot more water and they do have sufficient rainfall. And so there it's difficult to grow in essentially like a soaked sponge. And so you're pulling some water out of the the soil. In the Mississippi Delta area, so that's all of the, the really flat area surrounding the Mississippi River. That river is the largest in the country. And it has an aquifer underneath it that is replenished by that river. And so while the soils there are sandier and they drain pretty well, you've got a, a very full aquifer beneath there and you're able to irrigate a lot of those farms. And so you're looking at the age of the wells, the number of, of hours that have been run on them. You're looking at the number of wells and then maybe historic crop yields or, or how it's been irrigated. In the Southwest, you are seeing some real constraints on water. And that doesn't mean that there's going to be you know, full stop on, on agriculture there, but there are areas that ha- have higher water risk than others. Uh, something we look for is dual source water. And so that would be like both groundwater and surface water. Surface water brought to the farm from like a canal on the surface and then groundwater being brought to the the property from a well, usually on site. And so th- that's something that we really look at in that area. And then uh, you're also seeing in, in terms of trends and how people are uh, handling this, like there may be irrigation districts that have constraints on water. And if you think of a, an irrigation district, if they say you can only pull three acre feet, the acre feet would be basically filling up one acre of land with water. You can only pull three acre foot out, but the trees you need there require five acre feet of water. And so you may buy a hundred acres, but only plant 60 acres so that you have water rights across all of those. And you just direct all of the water to a smaller percentage of, of the property so that you have sufficient irrigation or, or water for those. So there's a number of different ways. Farmers are incredibly innovative and you know everybody knows that we're, we need to um, pay attention to the, the water situation in the Southwest. And there's a lot of work being done with those groundwater uh, management areas and, and irrigation districts to get to sustainability in that situation. You mentioned like a lot of innovation going on a lot of ways to kind of go around like these problems that are happening with, with these certain parts of the country. Cause like you said, like, what are you going to do? You just, you can't just stop growing crops, right? Like, I mean, that could be, you know, potentially, I don't say devastating, but I mean, that, that could definitely have an impact on, you know, food supply, right. You know, and potential prices and things like that. Yeah. People need to eat. <laughs> people need to eat, right. Yeah. Are there any other kind of developments in, in, in farmland? I know one of the big things is regenerative farming where the soil is capturing carbon and, and that's a whole other industry. But I'm wondering, like, what, what other kind of innovations do you guys, uh, do you see as, as, you know, that maybe that are taking place on your farms or just a, a, on the industry as a whole? In terms of like tr- new trends in the industry? Yeah. Yeah. You know, farmland is not a super trendy 
asset class. The large trends that we pay attention to that we are still very bullish on farmland because of, or that, that we're following are just that economic situation that you were hinting at previously that, you know, people need to eat. There's an, a growing population and growing demand of the food and then fuel and, and fiber that are grown on all of these properties. And then while there's still plenty of farmland for anyone who's flown across the country and looked out of their, their window, there's plenty of farmland available, but it is shrinking uh, primarily due to development, some taking out of out of operation or out of production due to water issues or erosion, but primarily just due to development. And so with a shrinking supply and a growing demand, that's the economic equation that we're really paying attention to and one that, that we don't really see shifting in the, in the near term. And then uh, in terms of other, like, I guess, more micro trends that the, the um, water situation in California is something that I brought up. There's, there's other ways that you can use water more efficiently on farms. And so who's farming almonds, what used to flood irrigate where they would actually just flood the entire orchard. Now you're seeing sensors in the technology to understand how much moisture or sensors in the soil to understand how much moisture is there and then drip irrigation right on the roots of that specific tree rather than flooding the entire area. So there's a number of innovations like that that are bringing efficiency to to farming operations. The other just kind of broader trend that we're seeing over the last few decades is the size of of a farm operation. So there is an aging population of farmers and farm operators and landowners. And the there is not as strong of a influx of new farmers that are coming in. There certainly are younger farmers and new farmers that are entering the space, but there's a shrinking number of them. And so with that, economies of scale are at play and the average farm size is growing. So 20 or 30 years ago, it may have been one or 2,000 acres. Now a typical farm might be 10,000 acres. And with the growing size of the farm, there's a lot more efficiency that can be reached with a, an operation like that. You know, frankly, that's where AcreTrader can provide a good solution as a growth partner for those those farmers. And so, it's been really fun to see how we can can play into that and and support growing farm operations. There's a example of somebody up in Minnesota that we've worked with, and he identif- It's a, an organic farmer, uh, and it, he is farming organically and then converting other properties that he purchases or that he brings into his operation to organic. You can get a premium. It's certainly more, there's more manual labor usually for organic operations, but uh, you can get a premium on the crop that is produced there. And he identified this piece of land that was a few hundred acres and he knew the, the woman who owned it. She was ready to sell it. She wanted him to be able to farm it, but he couldn't put that on his balance sheet. He just did not have the $2 million to, to buy that land outright. Well, he called Ben, who he knew at Acre Trader. Uh, he had been talking to him for 18 months. And he said, I finally have a piece of land that I, I want to work with you on. We still put that through our independent diligence process to understand the soil, the you know, makeup that, you know, this one, there were some other pieces of the diligence process to understand the market for the organic produce that was going to be grown there. But we decided to purchase it. We went under contract. Our investors bought this piece of land. He is now farming it, and he also participated on the platform. So he is one of the, say, 100 investors that bought into this opportunity and 
was able to, you know, kind of participate on both sides of it. So we do see operators, his name is Matt, we see operators like him that are focusing on organic uh, as well. About 15% of our offerings that we funded on the platform have been um, USDA certified organic or transitioning to that. And that compares to about 1% of of U.S. farmland. We want to give broad access to investors to the space, but uh, certainly have a a focus on that and have been able to uh, fund a number of projects like that. Yeah. Real quick. I mean, what is that like working with an organic farm as opposed to, you know, a farm that maybe uses pesticides? Is there a different process there, different considerations? And at at the end, at the end game, you mentioned a premium. Is there a premium in in the land when you sell it? And also, is there a premium in terms of like margins when you're selling the crop? Yeah. And I'm uh, not the expert farm operator on our team. There's a a number of them here in so I won't necessarily speak to all of the nuances of the different farming operations, but in terms of the economics of it for organic soybeans, say those are usually about 50, 60% higher. So you have higher input costs, but you're able to sell whatever you grow there at a higher cost uh, or higher additional revenue. And then in terms of the, the actual farm, it, th- there isn't like a fixed percentage of what the higher value is. Usually we, we do see them traded a little bit higher than a conventional farm. It does take three years to convert a farm from conventional to organic. So three years of not adding, not spreading basically anything that's grown on that piece of land. You can still farm there and market it just like any other commodity that you grow, but you wouldn't be able to market it as USDA certified organic if there were any of those uh, pesticides or chemicals used on it in that 36-month period. The, there's some risk in in that scenario, though, if you're working with the only organic operator in the area and they retire or you know no longer want to farm that piece of land, because then you're left with either leaving it fallow and not having a tenant, not having anybody who's who's renting it at that point, or you could rent it out to a conventional farmer and you lose that premium on the land because as soon as they spray, you have to go over the, the three-year period again. And so we want to also evaluate the entire market that you know there's dozens of organic farmers in that area of of minnesota we want so that helps us feel a lot more comfortable taking on that additional risk and then disclosing it to everybody who's looking at an opportunity to invest there you know I, this is kind of where i, I kind of want to jump into you know the investment part of it right like for the the investor and i was going through different offerings that you guys had and just kind of seeing and like you mentioned a lot of the offerings are between 10 and 20k around there you know 10 and thirty thousand dollars, and also the way you kind of sell off the part of the land is each, yeah, each share of the farm is one-tenth of an acre, right? So so people are buying one-tenth of an acre at a time. I guess my question is 10, 20,000 for sure. Uh, if you're buying land, much more affordable, uh, much more reasonable, still difficult for most people, I guess, to shell out, you know, $20,000 for an investment. At what point do maybe retail investors that maybe have a, a spare couple hundred or a thousand dollars, is that something that is an acre trader's future possibly? And also kind of what goes into you know, when you invest in it, what can people expect from the farmland? Yeah. So to your point, it's currently open to accredited investors and accredited investor. There's a number of ways that you can be accredited. This is an SEC rule, but the two primary are over 200,000 in annual income or over $1 million in a liquid net worth, basically your net worth, not including your primary residence. That is, it's under a certain securities regulation that we market or, or offer these investments to people the way that it's set up is you're investing in an LLC that actually owns that piece of land. So we would create AcreTrader 
101 LLC and it would be under contract to buy 200 acres of uh, farmland in Illinois, say. And then to your point, it's broken up into one tenth of an acre. So the reason that we set it like that is uh, there's usually a minimum, but the price per acre might be ten or $12,000. And it's hard to get really close to your target allocation. Say you wanted to invest $45,000, you could get there within one tenth of an acre within $500 or, or $800. And so the reason it's broken down to that one-tenth of an acre is just to allow people to get to their target allocation. And then after after we reach 100% subscription, we may have 50 to 100 different investors who have participated in that piece of land that real estate is purchased. And then those investors would receive annual distributions with their portion of the revenue, usually from rent, uh, that is paid out each year in December. And then whenever the farm is sold, usually five to 10 years down the road, investors would receive their portion of the initial principal, like their investment and appreciation. And appreciation is where most of the historic farmland returns have have come from. The annual yield tends to be pretty consistent, maybe in the two to 4% range. And the the appreciation is, is where we've seen larger returns for investors. And so that sale determination would be based on our review board here and our assessment of the market. We have, as I mentioned at the beginning, about 115 farms that are under management now. There have been three that have gone all the way through the investment cycle or the, the platform. And we've been able to pretty meaningfully outperform the expectations that we set with investors. And so it's it's been really great to see the model proving out and investors having you know significant returns from You actually mentioned something that I didn't think about. So there's actually three revenue streams. Correct me if I'm wrong. So you mentioned the uh, the the rent. So the, the the farmer has to pay the rent for the the land that they're using, and then the second thing was the the crop yield. Investors get a portion of the crop yield, and then and correct me if I'm wrong. And then the the final one would be the big one would be when the when the land is sold off. You know, uh, again after the five to 10 years. Is that right? Yes. And the the first two are uh, often combined. If, if it's just a straight cash rent, so say someone's going to rent it out for, if it's you know bought it $10,000 an acre and they're going to rent it out for $400 an acre, and that's just a straight cash rent, then their business is farming and, and the yield from the crops would go on their P&L. Our income would be just the $400 an acre, that 4% gross cash yield as well what we would signify that, that as. So there are other ways that you can structure rent. So there's something called a flex lease. And if average or typical rent might be $400 an acre, you might set the base rent at 375. And then there's a, a kicker in there for bonus rent. So if it's a really productive year or a really good year for uh, the commodities, then you're able to participate in the upside, but you have a floor set on the minimum. So if it's not a good year, you still know that you're going to get $380 or $375 per acre. So there are some hybrid models. We've, we've done that on probably 15 or 20% of the farms that have been funded on the platform. Those are more common in the Midwest, but that would all be that kind of annual cash flow. And there's other supplemental income that some properties have too, like hunting leases or something like that. Uh, but that, that's paid out each year. And then the appreciation would be whenever the farm is sold, you know, nothing is guaranteed. The past performance is not indicative of a future performance. But but yeah, we've we've been pretty happy with the uh, the opportunities. There's one farm in in Iowa where we bought it for under seven thousand dollars an acre. Uh, a farmer who it was not the person that we purchased it from. It was someone who was renting it out. 
a couple of years later, decided they wanted to buy the farm and they were in a cash position to do so. And they made an offer uh, at $10,000 an acre. And so it was a meaningful return for our investors. Uh, about 22% was the net IRR that was paid out to the investors. It was an opportunity where that farmer was able to bring those acres back or into his operation. It was net new for him. And it, it was a, a good good example of the model playing out where it's a, a win for the investors and a win for the farmers. Yeah. Um, I know, I, you know, you're talking about returns. I know that the site, the website uh, touts like a, an 11% return, but I know, I know that, like you mentioned before, you know, there's no guarantees, anything can happen. Right. And what are the risks to a farm? Cause when I think of a farm, I, you think of, of how many things can go wrong, right? Like you don't hear much about it. I mean, sometimes like you talk about like obviously drought, fire. One thing that's really interesting is like pests. Right. And I'm wondering if you could, if you could talk a little bit about that kind of what's out there in terms of a risk to farmland. Yeah. And, and just to clarify that 11% that's on our website, that's from a group called the National Council for Real Estate Investment Fiduciaries, but they have a farmland index they've been tracking since 1991. And so that 11% is the uh, combination of the yield and the appreciation average over the last 30 years and or 31 years now. Uh, one of the interesting attributes of that is that index has not had a negative year. So there's been years that weren't you know, 11%, but it, there hasn't been a negative year. In, and I don't know any other major asset class that, that has that. And it just speaks to not that there aren't risks or, and not that people can't and haven't lost money in, in farmland investing, but as an asset class, it has been a pretty stable alternative that hasn't really been correlated with the stock market. And so I know your, your audience is really interested in alts and it has some of those really unique attributes that I think brings people to alternative investing in the in the first place. But to your point, there are certainly risks. You know, one that we hear people ask about often is you know, when it's a private placement offering, there's not a way to day trade it. There's not a, a immediate secondary marketplace. And in general with farmland, there's not daily liquidity the way there are with public equities or or other type of investment opportunities. And so that lack of, of daily liquidity and, and lack of really frequent turnover is something that has probably contributed to the stability of the asset class. Uh, but that's something that you know investors might want to be aware of if they're participating in the space. We are actually working on and, and hope to open up a secondary marketplace here before too long to allow for some liquidity, but it would still be after holding it for at least one year, which is you know, something that any investor should be aware of prior to participating in the space. And then the on-farm risks, you hit some of them. Uh, I mean, water is the the biggest one, and we already spent plenty of time talking about that. But having too much or too little water is going to be a pretty bad situation for, for growing crops there. And then there are other like unique risks to certain areas, which is why a lot of investors like to spread their allocation across uh, across different climates and, and you know regions or geographies, but the ag space has some support from the federal government for crop insurance programs. So it's a crop insurance is something that's federally subsidized, and um, I'll oversimplify it here. But basically, if if you, there is a weather prevented planting or a crop loss, then an investor would file an insurance claim, and they would be paid out some large percentage of what their typical revenue would be. Most of the farmers that I know and, and everyone that we work with are enrolled in these crop insurance programs. And so if something happens like a few years ago, there was a, it didn't impact any of the farms that we had, but there was a, a big, I think it was called the derecho storm in Iowa, where there was this like insane amount of straight line winds and hail and it 
knocked over uh, a lot of corn crop. Well, in that scenario, if you've got an agreement for someone who's going to rent it out for $300 per acre, that's usually paid up front and, you know, April or May. And then they would have their revenue or income from the farm after they sell the grain there. Well, instead of selling the grain, they would have a crop insurance payout, but they're still paying a rental arrangement. Uh, it would impact you if you had a, a flex lease because you wouldn't be able to participate in all the upside of, of a really productive year. But there are mechanisms in place to, to cover a lot of those. But, uh, you know, water and, and weather are certainly two of the largest ones. Commodities is something that we hear a lot of people ask about. If you are invested in an orchard that only grows Honeycrisp apples, and there are demand trends away from Honeycrisp apples, then you know you would have to remove that tree and plant a new one for a different variety of apples. So you do take a little bit more commodity exposure for an orchard investment because uh, you know that that tree has a 25, 35 year life uh, or product, productive life ahead of it. But for the specific commodities grown on a row crop farm, which is like 99% of, of cropland in the United States, you get to choose and or the farmer gets to choose what they're going to plant each year. And as I mentioned earlier, it's usually just a cash rent situation. And so if there's large commodity fluctuations over time, rent might be a lagging indicator. Like if, if commodities go way up, then rent typically follows up a little bit, but it doesn't impact land investors that much on a year to year basis. Wow. Interesting. I didn't know that row crop Farmers can plant whatever they want year to year. I thought, you know, maybe that a farm was structured or built a certain way to where you had to plant something for five, 10 years. I don't know. Yeah. Crop rotation is uh, a, a big thing because different, like if you think about corn, will pull more nitrogen out of the soil. So there's a good rotation between corn and soybeans. But usually in the off season, a farmer may be doing different macronutrient application uh, protocols to the farms to make sure that it has the right, the soil has the right nutrient makeup for whatever they're going to grow. And then there there is a lot of of that that goes on in terms of shaping the farm as well. So the irrigation, there's you know furrow irrigation where they make these little long mounds throughout the the field and plant on top of the mounds and then they send water down in the little ditches in between them in order to irrigate. It's a, a very cost efficient way to to irrigate in some areas. They may go through with a, a land grader and and turn that from a uh, soybean farm into a, a rice farm by adding levees in there so that you can flood the rice the next year uh, so that you don't have to spray as much. Rice can grow in an, underwater in an anaerobic environment and many of the weeds cannot. And so they'll flood it and they do have to reshape the, the field. But I mean, to the point we were talking about earlier about how sophisticated farmers and farm operators are right now, there's there's a lot that, that goes into that planning. Yeah, just like the the techniques that they have, you know, the the know-how with how to manipulate the land and, and how to, you know, regenerate it every year. That's There's so much going on there, right? Yeah. I love driving around like rural Arkansas or Mississippi with a couple of the guys from our farm team. And just, I continue to, to soak up all of the different nuances and, and just knowledge that they have about how the, these these farms are operated. It's a it's a really fun place to work because there's so many of these different interesting things to learn. Yeah, for sure. I love this discussion because I think it was really heavy on like kind of like how Acre Trader you know looks at farmland, the relationship you guys have with the farmers, and just talking about farming in general. Um, and, and kind of the trends that are happening right now. Is there anything you know that you know we didn't cover? Anything that that you know the the listeners as investors or somebody just kind of curious about farmland investing that maybe we didn't cover or something that you want to emphasize? 
I really appreciate you having me on and thanks for asking. I think we hit most of the high points. I would say that if you are interested, it's free to you know create an account and spend some time going through the learning material on our website is just acretrader.com. And we've got a, a really talented group of investor relations uh, employees here that can be reached at info at acretrader.com if you want to send in an email. But we have new opportunities to invest in land just about every single week on our platform. And so again, yeah, free to open and maintain an account. And if you're interested in the space, we're happy to talk to you more about it. And uh, you can, you know, just uh, watch the different opportunities and and see if there's something that interests you. Uh, We send out, you know, an email whenever a new offering comes available. And and I know the Alts platform has as well. Uh, Really appreciate you having me on. You you guys came on our radar whenever you did a deep dive on the Tehama Olive Ranch, like, almost a year ago. I I hadn't uh, spent time on your platform before and our farm team's looking through it and they're like, wow, this is really thorough. Like a lot of times people will just, you know, republish something that like a description or something that uh, we had done. And I was really impressed with the amount of diligence and uh, just kind of sophisticated analysis that your team did. And it was a good opportunity and is is going well, but it's been fun to to connect here. I appreciate that shout out. I think that's part of a uh, Sunday newsletter. And so uh, Stefan's really proud. He's really proud of that. It's like, sort of like his baby. He started it off when he first started the company. So uh, I know he's going to be happy to hear that. He did well. It got sent around our whole office here, here of like, who's who's doing all of this analysis on our offering? Like they did a really good job. Like when he did all of varieties and everything. So um, appreciate the work that you guys are doing and, and spreading the word on the, the alt space. Awesome. Yeah, man. Um, thank you so much, Michael. It was really, really great having you on. Happy to have Acre Trader on as well and just keep continuing learning more about the space. I mean, I know that markets are tough right now. You know, I, I know I know I don't know how much of that is is has gone on. And even so, right? Like there are still some great investment opportunities and still a lot of education that that can continue to happen no matter what what's happening in the macro space, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I- um, as people are seeing stocks and bonds kind of come together, I'm sure you guys have been preaching against the 60-40 allocation for a while, with, given how much of a focus you have on alts. But it's certainly been a talking point for financial advisors of like really starting to look at alternatives because the you know 60-40 allocation, like here you are, you're diversified. That's not working for a lot of investors right now, and and so it's I think a, a good time for the alternative space. And happy to play a role. You know, farmlands just kind of doing its thing. It's it's not really correlated to a lot of the other asset classes. So not that it's not impacting um, our asset class, but it, it's been a good to uh, under-promise and over-deliver to, uh, to our investors with the, the offerings that we've had. That's a great way of putting it. So with that, Michael, thanks again for, for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Have a great day. You too. This was a great conversation with Michael going everywhere from how he manages relationships with farmers to the cycles in farmland. Acre Trader is a leader in the alternative asset space. So it was great to get insights from Michael on how they manage and bring the best possible investments to their stakeholders. A big thanks to Michael for joining the podcast and a big thanks to you for joining me today. Until the next time, take care.